I don't uh, typically title my sermons. Maybe I should, but I, I don't. Um, but today, I, I am going to give this sermon a title. I'm going to call it The Cost of Discipleship. And uh, it's not an original name. I stole it from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Maybe you've heard of him. Um, but he wrote a book called The Cost of Discipleship. And I read the book years ago uh, towards the end of high school. Um, but this idea that discipleship has a cost is an idea that's been on my mind a lot recently. I didn't read the book. I just had this idea of discipleship, and I saw it on my shelf, and I was like, Dietrich, I'm going to steal that from you. And he, he said it was okay. So um, I'm just kidding. He's not alive any longer. But um, anyway, we'll, we'll get to that, this, this idea that, that discipleship has a cost and that it's been on my mind. We're going to get there this morning. But um, I, I'd like to share a little bit of the story of Dietrich Bonhoeffer with you guys this morning. Um, he, he, he paid a pretty high price to be a disciple to Christ. Um, his commitment to Christ was, uh, it, it came at a price for him, and a significant price. He was born in 1906 in Germany, and he would have been in his late 30s at the height of Nazi Germany. And uh, he, was, he ended up being a, a Lutheran pastor as well as a teacher um, at a seminary in his early 20s, okay? So just a, an outstanding uh, mind, a phenomenal guy, and a clear commitment to Christ. And um, he, he was a small part, or he was a part of a small um, Nazi resistance group within uh, kind of the, the establishment of the Third Reich. As Germany grew to be more Nazi Germany that we knew towards World War II, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer set himself aside as somebody who refused to accept the authority of the Fuhrer as the head of the Church of Germany. So what happened was, as Hitler came to power, he started grabbing up these various uh, parts of German culture and established himself at one point as the head of the Church of Germany. Okay? And, and Bonhoeffer was not a fan of, of that movement, and he was a, a resistor to it. And while the majority of German churches ended up kind of falling to the ideas that Hitler's regime brought in, um, anti-Semitism, uh, Arianism, those types of things, um, the, the, the German church gave way and engaged along with the, the major German culture. But Bonhoeffer and his small group of resistors, like-minded Christians, were constantly challenging the church in Germany for its growing racist sentiments, its uh, imperialism, in its stance towards the world. And when World War II finally broke out, Bonhoeffer, a pacifist, was forced to find a role in the war. In that time, there was really no option. You, you either went to support the war effort in some way, shape, or form, or you left Germany. Um, so he was, he was forced, finally, to find a, a role in the German war effort. And he ended up joining the Abwehr. I'm not great at German pronunciation. I assume that's how you say it. The Abwehr. And it was a war intelligence division of the Third Reich that was also kind of secretly a hub for another uh, resistance group within Nazi Germany, okay? Separate from the group that he was really a part of as he resisted in what was taking place in the church. And, and although the, the Abwehr, most of the people were employed by uh, Hitler and the Third Reich, there was this small group within it that thought Hitler was a dangerous man and wanted him removed from power. It was their goal that even as they worked for him, to kind of subvert his empire and do what they could to bring down his reign. And while a member of the Abwehr, regardless of the danger to his life, Bonhoeffer continued teaching and training members of the underground church. 
traveling throughout Germany whenever he could, supporting Jews, encouraging pacifism, right under the nose of Hitler as he was ruling Germany. And during, during uh, his time as a member of the Abwehr, uh, Bonhoeffer eventually became involved in a plot to kill Hitler. Um, you've probably seen the movie Valkyrie, I think it was called. Okay, there were quite a few plots to kill Hitler, um, but uh, he wasn't involved in that one, but a similar type of plot. Uh, there were quite a few people in Germany who wanted nothing to do with what was taking place uh, in Nazi Germany. So he found himself involved in a small way in a plot to kill Hitler. And although he was a pacifist, I find this fascinating, a pacifist realizing that the situation is so dire that he needs to join a plot to kill Hitler. And although he was a pacifist, he, he writes in his journals that he hoped only for God's grace to be sufficient that if he was successful in murdering Hitler, God would still be compassionate. I mean, that's how intensely Bonhoeffer felt about pacifism, that he was torn. He had this inner conflict and turmoil. But he looked around at the atrocities of the Third Reich, and he, he, he thought, it's gone too far. Something must be done, and I will go to this extent to be a part of a plot to actually kill Hitler. And he, he came to this conclusion that he simply could not call himself a Christ follower and with inaction, condone and even support what was taking place in his country, the murder of millions of people. That's the decision that he came to. Now, ironically, he was eventually arrested by the SS, but not for his plot against Hitler. Uh, in, in the Third Reich at that time period, you had the SS and the Abwehr, and they were both kind of fighting for supremacy as the main intelligence agency within the Third Reich. And what ended up happening was the SS, in an, in, an, uh, in an effort to grab more and more power as Germany became this, this global force, imprisoned those who were a part of the Abwehr, even though they were working towards the same cause. They rounded them up and threw them in jail so that they could have more power. Okay? So he ends up in prison. He's there for a year and a half. And in the course of that time, eventually, uh, the, the plot is discovered that he was a part of, the plot to kill Hitler. And when it came across Hitler's desk, he was so furious that he ordered everyone involved to be immediately executed. And on April 9th, 1945, with no trial, Bonhoeffer was hung just two weeks before the U.S. troops liberated the, the prison camp that he was a part of. Okay? So here's a man who stood for something. He died a martyr's death for his conviction that the church should be subject to God alone and his courage to even carry out a plot, a controversial plot at that, to kill Hitler. And I think it's fascinating because rather than fall in line with popular thinking in his day in Germany or be subject to the authority of a madman with racist ideas, Bonhoeffer was willing to go against his, his own pacifist ideas because of a love for Christ that made him stand as a defender of the defenseless. I mean, how, how atrocious must the, the world around him have been to cause him to even go against his own convictions? And his story, to me, brings to mind the words of Jesus from Mark 34, or I'm sorry, Mark 8, 34 through 35. It's a very familiar passage, I'm sure. Let me just read it for you. Jesus says to his followers, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels 
will save it. Now, with, with the story of Bonhoeffer, there's certainly some gray here. Uh, you know, was he right to try and murder Hitler to save the world from the disaster of Nazi Germany? I think that's kind of a, a moral dilemma. It's kind of a, a moral conundrum, a gray area there. And I'm not really interested in, in debating the ethics of the situation. What I think is incredible is his commitment to Christ that kept him from being swept up into the popular thinking and behavior of the day that caused so many Germans to abandon a true commitment to Christ for the popular sentiment, the, the fad that had been brought about by Hitler's crazy thinking. And Bonhoeffer had this unwavering faith that laid aside personal security. He was willing to go to prison or suffer the consequences and his own well-being to stay true to his discipleship to Jesus. It's a fascinating story. It's an impressive story. And I think what Bonhoeffer truly died for was an effort to see the people of Germany so taken with Christ and the gospel, this message of peace and reconciliation, grace and forgiveness, so taken with this message that Hitler's influence over them would have had no power. If there had been something like the gospel filling the void that the people of Germany felt in that time period, Hitler would have had no power to rise like he did. And I think that's what Bonhoeffer died for, a passion to see his people passionate about Christ and the gospel. Now, we don't live in a culture that's anything like Nazi Germany, not even close. But the truth of the matter is, I think, I think a lot of times we want to skim over verses like this in the Bible. I want to read it again for you. Jesus says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. This is kind of one of those parts of Christianity that, that we, I think, sort of politely want to cut out uh, and, and, and pretend like Jesus never said them. You know, we, we, we like Jesus. He's a nice guy. Until he starts saying things like this, then we think he's a little bit crazy. So we tend to follow him up to a certain point, and then, you know, at that point, we're kind of like, all right, that's a little too far. That, that's radical. That's radical. I don't want to be that guy. But the, the truth is, Jesus said them. The fact of the matter is that true discipleship to Jesus comes at an incredible price. True discipleship to Christ comes at an incredible price. And history is filled with the stories of people who gave their lives for the sake of the gospel, literally died because of their passion for Christ. People who were put to death, and I think it's so ironic, they were put to death for proclaiming that God loves his children and Christ died for their sins. Can you imagine being killed for a message like that? And, and for the first disciples that Jesus called, the men we read about in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, these words from Mark 8 were literally true for them. This was a, a, an adumbration of what would take place at the end of their lives. Every single one of the disciples were murdered for their faith in Christ. And for them, discipleship certainly had a cost, didn't it? It came at, at the highest price that anyone can pay, their life. You can't think of paying a greater price for a system of belief. And, and I think it's fascinating that the world thought these men were so dangerous that the only solution to the problem of these disciples was to kill them, to keep them quiet. Now, we live in a totally different world, though, don't we? 
nothing like first century uh, Mediterranean area. We live in what appears to be a civilized world. People don't die for their convictions in the world that we know. Maybe it does happen in, you know, on planet Earth in places today. I'm certain it does. But not in uh, westernized America. It doesn't happen. People don't die for their convictions. I think it's actually worse than that. I would go so far as to say we live in a civilized world where people don't even have to live for their convictions. They don't. We post our faith on Facebook or Twitter. We tell our coworkers or our family that we're Christians. But nobody really expects much from Christians these days, do they? Maybe, maybe a, a professional football player who goes like this after he touches down or, you know, something like that. I'm not talking about Tebow. <laughs> anyway, um, I, I really think country music is a, is a phenomenal example of, of where our culture is at. I don't know if you listen to country music. I, I enjoy country music. I listen to it from time to time. But listen to a country station for one day. They flip back and forth between songs about Jesus and beer. They flip back and forth between songs about hot girls and going to church, maybe even meeting the hot girl at church, right? And, and I think it really is an interesting just kind of uh, microcosm within those songs of how people think about Christianity today. It doesn't have this, this depth of intensity to it that we see in, in people like the disciples and in people like Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I think the truth is that all too often popular Christianity in America seems to require nothing from us. Nothing from us. A lot of times we think even an hour on a Sunday morning is a lot to pay. And I'm, 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 frankly, I'm thrilled to live in a world where I don't have to die for my faith. I'm not saying that I wish I lived in a world where I was persecuted for my faith. I do not. Don't get me wrong. And I don't think anyone in this room is falling short of their calling to discipleship if you don't die. You know, I, I don't think that we're bad because we're persecuted. If you're not killed for what you believe, that's, that's actually a good thing. Okay, don't hear me wrong. But I am scared to death of a world where discipleship costs me nothing. Where there is no price for me to pay. Where my belief system doesn't come at a price. What kind of belief system is that? How deep can my conviction go? Bonhoeffer, in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, he calls this idea cheap grace. And, and it cost God everything to accomplish what he did. We receive his forgiveness for nothing. There's no price that we can pay because Christ already paid it. It wasn't a cheap grace. It was the most costly grace there is. But do we take that gift for granted? Don't we? Don't we take it for granted? Because it's free for us, do we regard it as something cheap or without value? Generally, think about this for a second. Generally, the things that we value the most are the things we paid the highest price to obtain. Isn't that the case? I mean, I think about what I, what I sacrificed to, to be able to support my children. I work 40 hours a week at a job I couldn't care less about to bring home a paycheck so that I can keep my children in a home and have food on the table for them. I don't, I don't care about the job, I care about my children, and I will pay any price to provide that home for them. Generally, the things that we value the most are the things that we paid the highest price for. And I think the danger for us in Christianity is we don't pay anything for salvation. Sometimes Mitch and I joke that um, we, we wish that we were uh, a little bit more like one of those religions where you, where you have like a, an actual checklist where you have to do things, and if you don't, you get kicked out. 
Because in, in Christianity, that's the danger, isn't it? We don't pay anything for salvation. It's totally free. It's totally free. We get caught up in the words like Jesus uh, of Matthew eleven twenty eight. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. What a great passage of scripture that is. But how easy it is. Now that's a Bible verse that I like. It's got words like rest and easy and light. You know, that's my style. Makes me think of like Christianity while I sit on a couch with a cold drink, you know. But when we put Matthew 11 next to Mark 8, the two passages seem totally incompatible. How do they fit together? How can Jesus at one moment say, come to me if you're weary and heavy laden and I'll give you rest because my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And then almost in the same breath say, if you're going to follow after me, take up your cross and be ready to die because that's the price that you will pay. The cross, was, it was an instrument of death. There's nothing light about it. Where Christ ended was not a light or easy burden. The cross, it was the most gruesome form of humiliating punishment that the Roman Empire could come up with. Now, I think the reconciliation of these two verses, these two ideas, comes in, in sort of a strange anomaly. And let me try and explain it real quick. Did you know that the most explosive periods of growth in the church throughout history, have always come at times of intense persecution. Isn't that fascinating? The more the church is persecuted, the more people who believe are hunted down, sniffed out, persecuted, killed, beaten, and oppressed, the more people join it and stand firm in their faith. Isn't that the strangest irony? Why? Why is that the case? And, and historically... Interestingly enough, it's not long after Christianity becomes the established norm, the easy and simple way about, of living your life, that, that the people group that, that uh, accepted it as normal begin to slowly stray from their faith. Isn't that a strange dichotomy? When people are persecuted, they believe more, they cling to Christ, they stand firm. When it's easy and simple and accepted, people walk away. Without, I, I think what it comes down to is this idea. It, 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 the, the answer is found in the words of Jesus when he says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. Without the labor of trying to carry our cross, without the weariness that comes from denying ourselves, without the difficulty of following Jesus, what value is there in coming to him for rest? You don't need rest. In other words, there's nothing compelling about his message of rest and easiness if you're not carrying your cross. It's simply not a compelling message if you're not burdensome. Why come to him if you have nothing to take off of your shoulders to put onto his? Why look to him for strength and comfort if you're not sacrificing anything? And our understanding of the value of Christ grows exponentially the more that we sacrifice suffer and surrender to him it's true and that's why jesus told the religious leaders who hated him he said to them if you think you're fine great i didn't come for people who are well 
I came to heal those who are sick. I came to seek the lost. He came for those who appreciate his power to take their burden and make it easy. This idea has been on my mind a lot lately because I have this kind of haunting feeling of despair floating around in the back of my mind. And, we're, we're, and I'll explain it to you. We're almost two years into Maricopa Springs, which by, by any stretch in church planting, we're, we're still in infancy, okay? But I'm, I'm only now realizing, and maybe I'll realize this every couple of years, but I'm only now realizing that I have no idea what I'm doing starting a church. I don't have the slightest clue. I really don't. I believe with all of my heart that God called us here to Maricopa to start this church. Not just me, but my family. That, that this is where he wanted us to be established. And not just for us, but for Maricopa Springs. To, to do what he called us here to do to reach people. But now that I'm here, I've done that. I've, I've started the church. Now what? I honestly, now what? I'm not entirely sure what to do. I know how to put on a church service. I know that I can craft a decent sermon. I know that I can take out advertising and get people in the door. I can place signs on a street corner in a town where there's 100 new people here every day. And I can sure get a couple people in the door. You know, I can even patiently wait for our church to grow and I can gain notoriety in the city. But frankly, I don't care about that. I really do not care. What haunts me is the fact that none of those things are effective in making disciples. That's what haunts me. You can grow a church without creating Christ followers. And I confess to you guys this morning, I'm not entirely sure how to help you become a disciple of Jesus. I don't think standing up here for 30 minutes on a Sunday is really going to accomplish that. I don't think it's, it's enough. But I'm not entirely sure what else to do. I'm really not. I bought four books this week that I'm going to read, and hopefully maybe they'll give me some ideas. But, and I want you guys to hear me. Don't, please don't leave our church when you hear me say that. Um, my guess is a lot of other pastors are probably struggling with the same thing. But, but the, the reason why I encourage you to stay and, and figure this out with me is, is that I'm committed to figuring it out. I don't just want to put on a warm, fuzzy church service. A major focus on my heart as I think about 2012 and, and the next couple of years, however long it takes, is, is to figure out what it means to, to create disciples, to disciple people. And we're going to figure it out if it takes the next decade. But the question in my mind looks something like this. How do we at Maricopa Springs get people to be so weary from carrying their cross, that the words, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. How do we make people so weary of carrying their cross in pursuit of Christ that those words are compelling enough for people to come and joyfully cast their burdens on Christ? I think if you break down discipleship, that's, that's kind of what's at the heart of it. And maybe it sounds crazy, but I I seriously want to have a church full of people who carry their cross, who really understand how refreshing these words of Jesus are. Because discipleship has cost them everything. And they're tired. They're tired. And in that state, that's the state that we come to Jesus, and we finally understand fully what he means when he says his burden is light. It's not that it's easy. 
It's that in exhaustion, he takes that burden off of us. And if you're sitting here this morning, you're wondering why Christianity feels kind of dull and flavorless, why it doesn't seem to mean much for your real life, you know, why it's this bizarre thing that they talk about things in church, but then when I go home, there's this disconnect. If you're sitting here, you're wondering why that phenomenon takes place, then maybe it's because you've never taken that next step from casual believer to committed disciple. And if you've been coming here for any uh, length of time and you're in that position, forgive me. Forgive me. Because I promise that if you have a desire to be a disciple, we will figure it out. We will be a church that, that creates disciples. I'm not sure how yet, but we'll get there. And maybe this morning, your responsibility is it's time for you to step into that role, to take it up a notch, and to take your cross and to follow Christ, not casually, but as a disciple ready to pay the price because I promise you the reward is worth it. We're going to take communion this morning because I can't think of a better thing to do in response to the idea of the cost of discipleship than come to the table where we remember the fact that Jesus shed his blood and gave his body for our sins. And I really want to encourage you guys this morning to remember the extreme price that was paid for your salvation on the cross. It wasn't cheap. We may think grace is cheap, but it was not cheap. He gave his body, he shed his blood, the highest price that can be paid, and he did it so that we could be redeemed. Even if we don't figure out what it means to be disciples, we're still accepted. We're still embraced. We're still his children. And my hope for you guys, as you take the bread, you dip it in the wine or the grape juice, and as you taste it on your lips, that you realize that there is nothing cheap about grace. There's no such thing as a disciple who doesn't pay a price to follow Jesus. And it's worth it, I promise. It's worth it. As Lynette comes up here, she's going to play a song for us while we take communion. And whenever you're ready, I encourage you to approach the table and just take off a piece of that bread, dip it in the grape juice or the wine, praise God in that moment, and then you can find your way back to your seat to just worship with us. But as, uh, as we turn to that, I, I want to just read this quote from Bonhoeffer to you guys in closing. He says, Cheap grace is the grace we bestow on ourselves. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you for the price that was paid. And Lord, I, I pray that the... the that people in this room would feel a desire to be disciples, not out of a guilty conscience, but, Lord, because we understand that the price that we will pay is worth it. The cost of discipleship may be great, but it is worth it. And at the end, we'll hear those words, that your burden is easy, your yoke is light, that we can cast our cares on you. God, I pray that we would worship you this morning for for being a God who does the hard work for us, who went to the cross for our sake. 
And it's in your name we pray. Amen.